Galatians chapter 5, and our text begins at verse 26. There's a side of the Christian life we're going to talk about tonight that we don't know much about. There's little said about it in the Scripture, so there's little practiced of this side of the Christian life. I'm talking about gentle restoration. I must admit that gentleness and patience is hard to come by. The, um, out in public, I think that we come across as being harsh and severe rather than sensitive and gentle and, and uh, kind. The interesting thing about this subject tonight is that it is the theme of chapter 6, gentleness. What makes this interesting is that it, it's in the context of an aggressive epistle. This, uh, the epistle of Galatians, as we've already seen, is really the, um, the outburst of an angry man. I mean, it's like using a nightstick, you know, on a guy. The way he, write, the way he writes is he comes across as like a person with a machete cutting his way through the brush. I mean, he takes no captives. And when he gets down, though, to the last verse in, ver in chapter 25 and moves to chapter 26, to, to, uh, verse 26, move to chapter 6, the theme is, is gentleness. It is as though the apostle is saying that even though it is important that a person take an aggressive stand against the wrong and an aggressive stand of conviction for the right, it is also essential that that person exhibit tenderness and gentleness and, um, and kindness. Now, even though this is a, 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 an epistle addressed to a church collectively, what we're talking about tonight is how we're, to how we're to react to one another and how we're to treat one another, whether it's in a church setting or in a family setting. In fact, what we have really is, is a guideline for human relationships and how I am to treat those people within my family, whether that family is at the address where I live or in the church address where I worship. I'm continually uh, uh, impressed by the gentleness in the life of Jesus. He was gentle to little children. They loved to be around Him, it's obvious. They climbed on Him. They loved to sit in His lap. And He was gentle to the crowds that came. You read some of the accounts of these mobs of people that pressed around Jesus, wanting a handout or wanting a touch. And they just swarmed him. And there were times when I'm sure that he was exhausted physically and mentally. And there were these people that were grabbing after him and wanting something from him. And he was so gentle to them. And he was gentle toward Judas, the, the betrayer. Read that account again. 
And notice how he dealt with this man in the last night, knowing that this was the one who would betray him to death. And when he was placed on trial, there is this gentleness. He, the scripture says that he reviled not again. There was a gentle kindness about Jesus. Now don't mistake this for a lack of courage. I think the older we get, the more gentle we become. I think I am a lot more tolerant than I used to. I, I believe that it's because the older I get and the more mistakes I make, the more tolerant I am to those who make them. I, I remember when, you know, uh, perfection was the idea, the goal, and I just didn't, couldn't tolerate anybody's mistakes. I think gen the older we get, the more tolerant and gentle we become. I hope that's true. I do know this is true, that gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit of God. Now if you look back up in the context in verse 22 of chapter 4, of chapter 5, look how he, how he, how he writes, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. By the way, do you know how we translate, you know how we say that? This is the way we say that. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, etc. You ever notice that? That's exactly how we, we describe that. Well, the etc. is as important as love, joy, and peace. I mean, it is just as important that a believer manifests the fruit of gentleness as it is that he manifests the fruit of love and joy and peace. For it is, he says, for the fruit of the Spirit is gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So if what Paul says is this, that when the flesh produces the activity of your life, you're abrasive, and there's this frown on your face, and you're dogmatic, and you're unbending, and you say, shape up or ship out. America, love it or leave it. You know that, how that goes. But when the Spirit produces the activity of your life, there is gentleness now I want us to begin tonight with the negative, how we're not to treat other people. How we're not to treat other people. Verse 26. Now watch this carefully. We're not to treat other people with conceit or inferiority. Now look how he says. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. Now there are two ways that I can respond to you, two ways that we can interact. I can approach you with a feeling of superiority or conceit. And the result of that attitude toward you is, I'm better than you. I'm superior to you. And it causes us to challenge one another. And there's a thin line, folks, and it's one of my biggest concerns is that in our, in our um, attempt to be more godly and more, more holy, whatever the term is, we have a tendency to put ourselves up on a level and look down on other people. And there are those people who make mistakes, and they're common with all of us, make mistakes, and our tendency is to look down on them or to give them, them the impression that we're better than they are. 
So if I react to you with a feeling of superiority, it causes me to say, I'm better than you, I challenge you. But if I have a feeling of inferiority, it causes me to envy you. So I can either look on you with superiority and want to challenge you, or I can look on at you from an attitude of inferiority and envy you. One says, I'm going to try to prove that I'm brighter and keener and better than you because I know I am. And the other says, I envy the gifts and the abilities that you have. One says, I'm, one says, I'm better than you and I'll prove it. The other says, you're better than I and I resent it. And Paul says that we're not to do either one. That there is a balance between the two so that the bottom line is this. Watch this. When a person produces or, or bears the fruit of the spirit of gentleness, it takes that chip off his shoulder, that arrogancy that says, I'm going to prove I'm better than you. You come up to my level and I'll accept you. On the other hand, it causes us to, if there's a spirit of gentleness, I don't feel inferior to you, therefore I don't have to resent you, and I can rejoice in your successes. And I can see that your victories are my victories because we're all in this thing together. And so Paul says, don't treat one another out of superiority or out of inferiority. How are you supposed to treat someone? Well, that's chapter 6. Let's look at it. Verses 1 through 5. Now, I want to skip verse 1. I'm going to come back to it in a minute. I want us to go to verse 2. And the command is, bear one another's burdens, and thus fulfill the law of Christ. The command is the burden-bearing ministry. A number of years ago, the Salvation Army was founded by uh, William Booth. Evidently, he, this man was a godly, humble man. He couldn't attend the International Convention of the Salvation Army on one occasion, so he, he wired his, his message he was to give. It was a one-word message, others. In the Peanuts cartoon, Lucy says, Why are we here on this earth? Caption 2, or segment 2, Charlie Brown answers, To make others happy. And segment 3, Lucy says, or asks, Then why are the others here? Bear one another's burdens. One another is the key phrase in the Christian vocabulary and we must never forget it. One another. I like Carl Baker's poem called Pronouns. He says, And the Lord said, Say we, but I shook my head and I put my hands tightly behind my backs and said stubbornly, I... And the Lord said, Say we. And I looked on them, grimy and all awry. Myself and those twisted shapes, oh no. Distastefully I turned my head away, persisting, they. 
The Lord said, Say we. And I, and I at last, richer by a hoard of years and tears, looked into their eyes and found that heavy word that bent my neck and bowed my head. And like a shamed schoolboy, I said, We, Lord, bear one another's burdens. Bear one another's burdens. I come here on Wednesday night and, and I, uh, I give requests for, you know, I ask for requests and encourage people to, to um, share their deepest needs with one another here. Occasionally that happens. One or two will do it. Not often. And I never go away from here without thinking, I wonder why we don't feel like doing that. And I wonder why it is that I'm not free to come up to you and say, I need you to help me bear this burden. And I wonder why it is that you and I, in an attitude of tenderness, gentleness, are not willing to do that. For doing it is to fulfill the law of Christ, he said in verse 2. I was out visiting one night when I was pastoring a seminary church and I had a deacon with me. It's always dangerous to take a deacon out visiting. And sure enough, this guy, we visited this guy, he was really a, he was a tough character. And he said, you know, in the conversation, he said, I understand that there is another commandment than the Ten Commandments. I'm, he, and I'm thinking, oh, great. He's going to ask me if I know what it is. Sure enough, he did. He said, do you know what the Eleventh Commandment is? And he was really wanting to know. He wasn't just tricking me. And I'm saying, Lord, give me an answer. If it's wrong, who cares? Just give me an answer. And I thought a minute, I said, yeah, I think I do. I think it's the commandment that Jesus gave just before He left His disciples. And He said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Now you cannot be obedient to Jesus Christ without loving one another. And you say, well, of course I love, you know, we lo I love my brothers and sisters. Wait a minute, wait a minute. What, it, what does it mean to love one another in fulfilling the law of Christ? It means getting involved in the burden-bearing ministry. That's what loving one another means. Um, it's like one of our brothers' mother died today. C.W. Mangrum's mother passed away. If you've ever buried a mother, you know the burden of that. Anybody care to bear that burden with him? And fulfill the law of Christ? Now there are a couple of implications of this. One implication is the implication of self-deception. Now look at verse 3. It says, For if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. 
If you think you are above, a cut above everybody else, you're living in self-deception. And there's some people who feel that way, both young and old. If you think you are a cut above somebody else, you're living in self-deception. It's the subtlest form of hypocrisy. You're like everybody else sitting on the pew with you. You're a human person as they are. And the second implication has to do not only with, not with self-deception, but with self-comparison. He said, let each one examine his own work. And then he will have no reason for boasting in regard, in regard to himself alone and not regard to other. And it goes back to, to verse 1. Let's look at verse 1. Brethren, if a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking, looking to yourself, look to yourself, lest you too be tempted. Let me read that from a living Bible. Dear brothers, if a Christian is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help him back onto the right path, remembering that the next time it might be one of you who is in the wrong. And I cannot read verse 1, chapter 6, without remembering what went on in the upper room. And when Jesus said, one of you will betray me, they didn't automatically turn around and look at Judas. And they didn't automatically look towards Simon and say, I bet it's him. He's always getting into trouble. What they did say was, Lord, is it I? For everybody in that room understood that they possessed the ability to betray him and they all knew it. For there is in everybody's heart the potential to the worst kind of evil. The next time it may be you, he said. And the idea is that it's like caught in a trap. It's like You've overcome, he says, that, that person who is overcoming a fault is like slipping on ice, caught in a trap. It's not a premeditated, deliberate thing. I, I, I find very few people within the family of God who have fallen into sin who meant to do it. They never mean to do it. Now verse 5 is not a contradiction. Look at this. For each one shall bear his own load. The first word for burden means heavy burden. The second word for load means for burden means soldier's pack. And what he's saying is that we should help each other bear the heavy burdens of life, but there are responsibilities that each person must bear for himself. No freeloaders. Now let me ask, answer some questions that are very important. I, I think this is a really, really relevant um, concern, not just in the church, but in the family. Who does the confronting? Well, he says, back to verse 1, you who are spiritual. Now, what does he mean, you who are spiritual? You go back to verse 22 of chapter 4, and that's the answer. 
You who are manifesting the gifts of the Spirit. You who give evidence of the Spirit's control in your life. You are the ones who are to confront those who have fallen. Didn't say anything about the deacons or the elders of the church. Some occasionally, not all the time, somebody comes up to me and says, you know, I think we ought to get in, within our deacon body, we ought to get a group of deacons and go and talk to some of these people who have drifted away from God. It's not the responsibility of the deacons. Who is the one to confront the fallen? You who are spiritual. It may be that you're a teenager. It may be that you're 70 years old. But that's the qualification. Those people who are manifesting the fruit of the Spirit. How is it to be done? In a spirit of gentleness. There's humility there. There is straight talk. It says, you're caught in a trespass and I've come to help you out. There's a spirit of gentleness. Somebody was telling about an experience that happened in, in uh, their uh, church. There was a gentleman in their church, a banker who had failed or been guilty of some kind of... Uh, um, criminality in, the, in his business in the bank was uh, um, indicted for embezzlement. First thing the church did was get together and turn him out of the church. Um, the conclusion of the man who was sharing that was this. I'm not sure that the man wasn't better and the ones who turned him out. What is this gentleness that we're talking about? Barclay puts it like this. He says, it is the mean, that is the, 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 the average, the, the, the middle between excessive anger and excessive angerlessness. If prous, that's the word gentleness, is used of an animal that has been tamed and brought under control. So the word speaks of that self-control which Christ alone can give. What is the goal? The goal is to restore someone, to restore them. It's the exercise of a repair work. It's used of a surgeon who removes a growth or sets a limb. It was used of the equipping of a fleet of ships, giving something to a person because it was missing something, that it, it was lacking something. When I was a... Uh, about a senior in high school, I, I worked on Saturday at a grocery store. And there was this guy that was the assistant manager of this little grocery store in downtown Monday. And the grocery store would be about the size of this grocery store right over here, but it was the largest time mean, it was a supermarket in, in Monday. And uh, I'm, I'm sharing with you now, making a confession here. 
I'll show, tell you something that, to, to illustrate this point. I discovered that underneath this counter here that where we were checking out that there was, to, there was tobacco and, and we kept tobacco and chewing tobacco and cigarettes and that kind of stuff underneath there. And I was kind of checked around. Nobody's looking. I just got me a carton of those cigarettes. I had my truck parked at the back. And I just take that back and put it in my truck. That was so easy. I thought, well, I'll try it again, you know. And I just made three or four trips, you know. Got me some chewing tobacco, you know. And took that out there and put it in my truck. And cigarettes. Just hauling it out like a pack rat. When the quitting time was over, we worked late on Saturday night. I started out to the truck. And this man, who was a, an active layman in a, in a Methodist church in Monday, Texas, I, I'm not even, I've never, I haven't seen him since I graduated from high school, but there's hardly a week past, true story, there is seldom a week passes that I don't think of him. He walked over and he put his arm around me. He said, Gerald, I have every confidence in you, he said. He said, I know what kind of person you are. He said, I want you to know I'm really disappointed in what I've been watching you do today. He said, I'll tell you what I'll do, Gerald. He said, you can bring that stuff back in and put it up and make a vow to me that you'll never, ever do that again or you can drive away from here tonight and I'm going to call the police. Well, <laughs> didn't take me long to come to a decision now. <laughs> and I said, well, how fast can I get that in there? And I have never been the same since. Now, what it seems to me that what is needed in this world, just in, in this community, is not more professional preachers who will stand up in a pulpit and teach from this word. What we need are some gentle restorers. Some people who will care enough Instead of getting together in a coffee shop and talking about how bad the young people are and what they see them do on the campus you know, in school days, and instead of doing that all day, begin to take some of them in their hands and their arms and say, hey, I care about you. I mean, let me spend a little time to set the limb that's been broken. That makes sense to you. And what we do some, in our weeding, you know, the, the, the disciples said to Jesus, do you want us to weed in this parable? you want us to weed out the weeds? He said, no, just don't weed out the weeds. Because in weeding out the weeds, you might destroy, you might hurt the grain. And so we're out here trying to weed out the weeds when we need to be helping the grain. Why is this so delicate? 
three ways, reasons. Because we're dealing with a human being. We're dealing with a human being. I may, get, I may be you know, stretching this way out to the extreme, but it seems to me that it might just be that what you say or what you don't say to someone is a matter of life and death for them. And it might be the, the salvation or the destruction of them. We're dealing with human beings. You remember that, that, that a graphic scene from The Elephant Man when that grotesque individual began to scream, I'm not an animal, I'm not an animal, I'm a human. We're dealing with a human being. Second reason this is so delicate is, is, is this, is because we're not perfect models of righteousness. We're not perfect models of righteousness. And if we put ourselves into the shoes of these people who have, who have uh, drifted, who have kicked the traces, so to speak, who have, who have fallen, who have slipped on the ice, who have been caught in a trap, if we put ourselves in their shoes, we might feel a little bit less uh, free to condemn them. You know what I'm saying? And uh, these guys that work in the jail ministry know what I'm talking about. It sure is easy for us who feel perfect models of righteousness to condemn these people, some of them. Um, number three, it's a delicate matter because our purpose is to restore, not to cripple, to, to help and not to hurt. And I guess the bottom line is don't run from this command and restore one another in a spirit of gentleness. Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Don't run from that command, but watch Watch it as you do it. And I just can't imagine tonight what life would have, what, how it would have turned out for me if it wasn't for that man. And I just know tonight there are people that would respond in a positive way. Their life would be different if they just knew there are some people gentle enough and kind enough and loving enough to say to them, hey, I want to restore you and thus fulfill the law of Christ. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the gentle restorers and we know, Lord, that there are times when, like Paul, we are to condemn and aggressively war against wrong. But, oh, Lord, help us also to know that there are needs of gentleness, of positive affirming, and of a loving, understanding, compassionate spirit that says to the, to the fallen, I care about you and I'm not going to give up on you.
I love you. Lord, help us to be that kind of family that seeks to forgive and to love first. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. There might be someone this, morning, this, this evening who has a need to respond publicly, perhaps to join the church, or maybe you can identify with an attitude that we've talked about, or maybe you need Christ as your Savior, and you want to know how to do that. I know He won't turn you away. He will in no wise cast out. Won't we give that some consideration while we stand? We invite you to come.